Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you are listening to episode number 368 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Splashdown. April 27th, 1972. Aboard Command Module Casper, Capcom woke the astronauts with a cheery, Good morning, Apollo 16. Mission Control mentioned that according to the biomed sensors, Charlie slept the whole eight hours of the rest period, and his heartbeat averaged around 28 to 30 beats per minute. He was really in a deep sleep. Flight director of the Gold Team, Jerry Griffin, got on the comm and said there was a shift change coming up shortly, but before they left, the Gold Team really wanted to commend the astronauts for a job well done, and they were looking forward to seeing the crew when they got back to Houston. Jerry also mentioned that he talked with Lee Silver, and Silver also wanted to say, very well done. John Young answered that he and Charlie certainly enjoyed the gold team's work on the descent to land on the moon, saying, that was something else, wasn't it? These kind of comments really boosted the astronaut's spirits. They were especially happy that the geologists were pleased with their performance. Moving ahead, at 261 hours ground elapsed time, Mission Control tracked Apollo 16 at a distance of 39,820 nautical miles away from Earth. Their velocity was 9,807 feet per second, or 6,686 miles per hour. Meanwhile, there was a shift change in Mission Control. Phil Schaefer was now the flight director, and Capcom was now Henry Hartsfield. The astronauts now ate their breakfast, their last breakfast in space, and began to prepare for re-entry, stowing and strapping everything firmly in place. The next few hours were spent taking care of updates of their position, such as their tracking and state vectors, and all of the things they needed for a solid re-entry. Capcom requested a small mid-course correction, 
The reason for this burn was to target the service module away from an island in the landing footprint and to further fine-tune their entry angle. John Young reported that mid-course correction burn number 7 was complete at 263 hours, 26 minutes ground elapsed time. Apollo 16 had already traveled over 14,000 miles closer to Earth and was now at a distance of 25,048 nautical miles, traveling at a velocity of 12,316 feet per second or 8,397 miles per hour. The closer Apollo 16 came to Earth, the more it accelerated due to the Earth's gravitational pull. The crew didn't feel this acceleration, but their instruments showed a steady increase in velocity. Mission Control also reported that their tracking data showed Casper was right in the groove and they were going to take another hour's worth of data and then give the astronauts their final pad entries. I'm sure you recall it was critical for the spacecraft to be at a certain angle for re-entry. If the angle was too shallow, the spacecraft would bounce out of the atmosphere like a rock skipping across a pond, and the crew would be slung off into space. If the angle was too steep, the spacecraft would undergo a tremendous G-load, and there was the possibility that the crew would not survive such a load and the intense heat it would generate. At 265 hours, 14 minutes, ground elapsed time, Mission Control reported that Casper was now one hour, nine minutes away from entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Meanwhile, weather around the prime recovery vessel, the aircraft carrier Ticonderoga, was good. There was cloud cover at 2,000 feet, scattered. Visibility was 10 nautical miles. Wind direction was coming from 90 degrees at a velocity of 10 miles per hour. Wave heights were 3 feet. And in the area, there were 4 helicopters and 2 HC-130 rescue aircraft that would be airborne at the time of splashdown. Quickly, Houston reported, Apollo 16 was now at 10,535 nautical miles away from the Earth, traveling at 17,927 feet per second, or 12,222 miles per hour. The crew was aiming for a point 1,500 miles south of Hawaii. Velocity was building up quite rapidly now, 19,024 feet per second then quickly 20,347 feet per second. The astronauts were anticipating a max velocity of 36,276 feet per second, which is almost 25,000 miles per hour at time of entry into the Earth's atmosphere and a max of 7.07 g's deceleration. At 15 minutes before entry interface, the crew was to jettison the service module and orient the command module with heat shield forward. 
Of course, the service module was jettisoned because it didn't have a heat shield and would burn up when it hit the Earth's atmosphere. The service module had been the life of the command module and contained the main engine and oxygen and electrical supply. Jettisoning it left the crew with only an 8-hour oxygen supply and 15-hour electrical supply. John reported to Houston, Okay, we're a minute and a half to command and service module separation. And then, when the time was up, he reported, Separation, Houston. Separation from the service module went without a hitch. The pyrotechnical vents that separated the service module from the command module worked exactly as they were supposed to and fired right on time. The crew turned around so they could see it float away. Charlie had a momentarily sinking feeling as he recalled one simulation where they did this and then missed the Earth's atmosphere. Lost in space. But this was the real thing, and Charlie knew they had made no mistakes. Just a few minutes more and they would be home. But these minutes would be action-packed. A thought of disaster flashed across his mind. Eleven days of success could end in disaster with one foul-up during re-entry. Things happen fast at 25,000 miles per hour, and the crew had to be ready. Back on Earth... Charlie Duke's house in El Lago, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston, was packed. Charlie's wife, Dottie, had given an open invitation for friends to view the splashdown, and many had come, champagne bottles in hand, to celebrate the big event. All the TVs were on. A special one had been set up in the garage for Charles Jr. and Tom, and a multitude of cousins and neighbor friends. Picnic benches were lined up movie style, and most faces were glued to the screens. Charles and a few others were releasing excess energy by racing their bikes around the driveway doing wheelies. The reporters that were waiting outside were invited to join the group in the garage, but they were content knowing that Dottie would oblige with an interview later. In the family room, applause sounded upon spacecraft separation, and then everyone fell silent as Apollo 16 approached re-entry. Dottie was tired. She had been waking up early during the flight, before dawn every morning, but now the adrenaline from the excitement of the day had her wound up and exuberant, greeting everyone and helping them find a place to sit. Every seat was taken, plus every square inch of the floor in the family room was filled with friends and relatives, some even standing in the hallway and kitchen. Dottie called for her sons to come in and watch the rest of the splashdown with her. They ran in, a little shyly at first, as they looked around at all the people. 
Then, snuggling beside her, they each grabbed one of her hands to receive some of her strength and confidence. The week had been difficult for the boys, and their little faces showed some of the fear and confusion they had been feeling ever since liftoff ten days before. They would be happy when their home returned to normal. Back on Casper, Ken Mattingly now oriented the spacecraft with the heat shield forward. This was like riding backwards in a car with the windows pointed to the rear. Ken had no trouble keeping an effective instrument scan on the initial deceleration into entry. All they could see was the blackness of space, but they knew they were getting close as they watched the velocity increasing on the computer. 31,000 feet per second, 33,000, 34,000, 35,000. Mission Control announced. One minute, 30 seconds. Apollo now traveling at a velocity of 35,823 feet per second. Capcom radioed that Apollo 16 was still looking good. In less than two minutes, the crew would experience loss of communication with Houston because as soon as the spacecraft hit the Earth's atmosphere, it would be surrounded by an ionized fireball, causing a total break in communication. But communication blackout was only supposed to last for three and one-half minutes. Velocity uh, 36,094 feet per second, range to go 1,357 nautical miles. Then Houston announced minus 30 seconds. Minus 10 seconds, velocity at 36,173 feet per second, range to go 1,270 nautical miles. We've seen a, a dropout in our telemetry data indicating Apollo 16 uh, now passing uh, through the Earth's atmosphere. Blackout began. And at 1 minute 40 seconds after atmospheric entry, Apollo 16 was going through its maximum heat load, which was between 4,000 to 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And it was encountering max G, which was approximately 7 Gs. The blackout was supposed to end in less than two minutes. On re-entry, Casper hit the atmosphere at an altitude of about 400,000 feet above the Earth and a velocity of nearly 25,000 miles per hour. But inside the command module, entry interface was imperceptible to the crew at first. Their first indication was a faint glow outside when the speeding spacecraft began to heat up the atmosphere. They watched as the instruments showed an increase in G levels, 1G, 2Gs, as the G level rose, 3Gs, 4Gs, they began to feel it on their bodies. The spacecraft was shaking now, and within a minute it had reached over 7Gs. When it reached max, Charlie felt like there was an elephant sitting on his chest, pushing him back into the seat, and it seemed as if the skin was coming off his face. His normal 150-pound weight was now 1,050 pounds. 
The crew remained conscious, even though it was difficult to breathe. Fortunately, all they had to do was monitor their systems, though in an emergency, they could still have taken action. By now, the heat shield was white-hot and charring away as it absorbed the tremendous heat of re-entry. They could see a huge white fireball encircling the spacecraft and watched as an occasional piece of tape burned and flew off the spacecraft and as small sections of the heat shield ablated and disappeared into the fire. Charlie was awed by the fantastic display. It was like the 4th of July. But, at the same time, he was required to concentrate on the spacecraft and its performance. A lot had to go right for a successful re-entry. A normal re-entry was to be under computer and autopilot control. But, if necessary, the crew could provide a manual backup. But this was a very complicated maneuver. Although the Apollo command module had no wings, and some would say it was like a lead balloon, it still did produce a small lift force like the wings of a plane. In the initial phase of re-entry, this lift force was pointed up and away from the Earth to minimize the G-forces. Then, as the spacecraft plunged into the atmosphere, it tended to skip out due to the lift. Of course, this had to be prevented from happening, for it would result in the eventual death of the astronauts. So, at the proper second, the spacecraft was to roll over 180 degrees to point the lift down, pulling the command module back into the atmosphere. This was a critical maneuver. And if the computer did not perform it exactly on schedule, the crew had just a few seconds to take over manually before disaster occurred. Mission Control gave the crew the exact second they should expect rollover. To monitor re-entry, the astronauts had their normal computer display and flight instruments plus a special re-entry monitor system. In addition, Charlie had two stopwatches, plus a spacecraft timer, and John had his watch. They were taking no chances with a broken watch. When it came time for rollover, Charlie was going to give it two more seconds by counting down one potato, two potatoes, and then, if it didn't roll over, they would take over. Clocks and watches going. The crew counted off. Ten seconds to roll over. Five, four, three, two, one. And right on the second, they started rolling over. And as they rolled over, inverted through the fireball, they saw the crystal blue Pacific Ocean with little puffy white clouds over the water. It was a beautiful sight, and at that moment, the crew knew they were definitely coming home. Barring a parachute failure, they had made it. 
They were now securely captured in the atmosphere with no danger of a skip out for they were falling below orbital velocity. Now, the job of the guidance system was to get Casper to the desired landing point. To do this, the autopilot began to roll them back and forth, pointing the lift vector in the proper direction to hit the target. Meanwhile, they listened for acquisition of signal from Houston. Then Mission Control reported, The ship Ticonderoga reports radar contact. We are 3 minutes 30 seconds from time of entry. We should be passing out of the period of communications blackout. We'll stand by. As the crew continued to roll, they sensed the G-levels beginning to decay. From a little over 7 Gs, the G-level dropped to 6 G's, 5 G's, 3 G's, and then at about 100,000 feet, they began coming almost straight down in a free fall right over the landing spot. The crew braced themselves, anticipating the opening of the drogue chutes at 23,000 feet. can see them on the TV, and if you want me uh, to, I'll describe it. Otherwise, just watch it. The 16 and one-half feet in diameter drogue parachutes were used to stabilize the spacecraft until deployment of the 83-foot diameter main parachutes at 10,000 feet. But when the drogue chutes opened, instead of feeling a stabilizing influence, the crew was whipped back and forth in violent oscillation like a kite flying on the end of its string. Then, at 10,000 feet, the drogue chutes were jettisoned and it felt like the bottom had fallen out. 
Immediately, the crew heard the pop boink as the mortars fired the three main chutes out of their storage containers. The main parachutes deployed first in a reefed or half-open condition. This was to prevent any damage happening to them from the opening shock. At 8,000 feet, the reef lines were cut and the parachutes opened fully. What a beautiful sight. The crew had just to look out the overhead window and see those three parachutes blossoming and twisting against the blue sky. They were exhilarated. Charlie breathed a sigh of relief that the final moments of the mission were going to be nominal. If the parachutes had not opened properly, they had only a few seconds before hitting the water at a great rate of speed. Such an impact would have probably killed them instantly, and the spacecraft would most likely have split open and sunk. The crew was informed that the Ticonderoga had sighted them visually when the drogue chutes began to deploy. This meant, for the first time, the whole parachute deployment sequence had been covered by TV. Back in El Lago, the house erupted. There it is. We can see it. There it is. Isn't it beautiful? Everyone was awestruck that the cameras had been able to pick up the spacecraft so soon, and the red and white parachutes did look beautiful as they gently carried the spacecraft toward the sparkling blue Pacific. Dottie never really had any doubts. But now she knew that 16 was going to make it, and her heart rejoiced. The boys laughed and clapped their hands along with everyone else in the Duke household. A few people had already begun getting the champagne ready because there would be much toasting after Casper was safe in the water. Back on Casper, the recovery forces informed the crew they were only a mile from their intended landing spot which was fantastic news. The computer had done a great job again. Charlie got up on his elbows to look out the window to search for the helicopters and the Ticonderoga, and he found them. The carrier looked like a postage stamp on the water, and a helicopter was flying circles around them while they slowly descended to splashdown. Ken called out their altitude, 800 feet, 700 feet, 500 feet. At 200 feet, Charlie planned to get back in position and brace himself for impact. 300 feet, 
200 feet. Charlie began moving back from the window. 100 feet. And at that moment, the spacecraft hit the water. estimates their position as being bearing 332 degrees distance 5300 yards from expected flight. Flight recovery. Go. The command module has gone stable too. Roger, stable too. Flight recovery, helicopters have been cleared to deploy their swimmers. First the ELS swimmer to the parachutes and then the recovery swimmer to the command module. Roger that. The altimeter was 100 feet in error, so Charlie wasn't in position at splashdown. Like a whiplash, his head snapped back and hit one of the steel supports of the headrest, almost knocking him unconscious. He did see a lot of stars. They hit the water so hard, splashdown felt more like crashdown. John said that hitting the water flat created a much harder impact than he recalled from Apollo 10. It was Charlie's job now to jettison the parachutes on impact, but before he could recover from his injury, the spacecraft flipped over and they were upside down in the water in what is called the stable two position. Fortunately, there was no danger because the command module could float, either right side up or upside down, but it was very uncomfortable for the crew it was like being strapped into a chair and having it turned inverted. They were hanging by the straps. To turn the spacecraft back over, there were three big balloons on top, which the crew inflated by turning on the air pump. It took about three minutes to get to the 90-degree position, and another couple of minutes and a fortuitous wave strike to get to the stable one position, which was right side up facing the sky.
The crew could hear a helicopter hovering above them and watched as three frogmen jumped out with flotation collar and life raft. The hatch was to be kept closed until the frogmen had put the flotation collar around the spacecraft. Without the collar, there was the danger of a big wave coming along and filling Casper with water and taking the astronauts quickly to the bottom. It took the frogmen about 15 minutes to get the collar in place and the raft inflated. crew heard a knock on the door. That was the all clear to open the hatch. Charlie opened it and staring back at him was a frogman still in his scuba gear. Great job, he mumbled through his mouthpiece, extending a gloved hand in congratulations. Charlie thought it was strange they were still wearing full scuba gear. The frogman threw a large bag inside the capsule containing a temperature monitoring device. This was completely unrehearsed. The crew had never been briefed on it, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they obviously weren't very happy. The frogman told the crew 
what they needed to do with the device in the bag, including how to tape it up. All the astronauts could think was, where is the duct tape when you really need it? It took the crew 10 minutes to find the tape and get that device up. Nothing like last-minute minutia after a brief trip to the moon. Finally, the crew got into the raft and the helicopter hoisted them aboard, one at a time. In true Navy fashion, John, as the captain, was the last to leave the ship. Inside the helicopter, they were attended by a NASA flight surgeon in case any emergency and were given fresh flight suits, a change of underwear, and a little deodorant so they could look presentable for the welcoming ceremony on the deck of the ship. Safely aboard the ship, the first several red carpets came out right up to the helicopter's door. Greeting the crew of Apollo 16 were an honor guard and a military band as well as Rear Admiral Henry Morgan and Captain Edward Boyd. The ship's senior chaplain offered a prayer thanking God for their safe return. The Admiral introduced the crew individually to the sailors and asked John to say a few words on behalf of the crew. Young made a tremendously moving talk thanking Ken and Charlie, the people at NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, and all the people around the country who made the mission go. He also acknowledged the American taxpayers, promising they had got their money's worth, that the crew had brought back some basic knowledge essential to the survival of humanity on this planet. John closed by thanking the U.S. Navy for picking them up. Then, Ken and Charlie spoke for a while. It was a very touching ceremony, with the music and everyone clapping and waving. The Navy was as happy to see the crew as the crew was to see the Navy. Then Charlie began to notice something. It seemed that every time someone got close to him, they had a funny look on their face. Later on, he realized why. When following the ceremony and after enjoying their first shower, the crew went back to the spacecraft, which was now on board ship. As Charlie began to crawl in, he found the odor almost overwhelming. You can imagine what the interior of that command module smelled like. (laughs) Three guys in such a little space for 11 days without a shower. It almost knocked Charlie down. And apparently, John, Ken, and Charlie smelled just as bad as the spacecraft. Immediately following the ceremony, the crew headed down below for the first of what would be several physical examinations, a rest period, and a shower, followed by some very good food. The doctors gave them their first physical, and as expected, they checked out very well, no major problems at all, although they were about 20% weaker on the stress test than they had been pre-flight. Also, Charlie had lost 8 pounds, but that weight loss was normal due to dehydration, and in a couple of days, he would be back to normal weight. The red carpets continued in port at Pearl Harbor, where they underwent more medical exams, 
at Hickam Air Force Base where they got loaded into a C-141 Starlifter transport at Ellington Air Force Base in Houston where they arrived to a large crowd of friends, family members, fellow NASA employees and reporters and at the Manned Spacecraft Center where they ultimately arrived and in the following days would participate in many hours of technical debriefing. Soon the crew began the obligatory NASA-sponsored tour of the United States. They appeared in 36 cities and towns. To all the folks who came to listen, they explained what the Apollo 16 mission achieved. Unfortunately, by that time in the United States, fewer and fewer people showed much interest in exploring the moon. However, it was estimated that they met and spoke to 350,000 people, and a huge percentage of them were outspoken proponents of space exploration. In conclusion, some of the rocks Apollo 16 brought back dated to 3.92 billion years. Some classed in the rocks were apparently 4.2 to 4.5 billion years old. Most significantly, though, it wasn't possible to find any evidence of volcanics. John and Charlie did discover that the Descartes Highlands were not comprised of rhyolite, the volcanic equivalent of granite, but rather of norite and anorthosite, breccias. What John and Charlie found at Descartes Cayley thus proved to be a major surprise that kept the scientists busy interpreting the moon's geology for years to come. Previous interpretations of how the lunar highlands were formed were fundamentally revised based on Apollo 16's evidence that meteorite impacts were the dominant agent in shaping the moon's ancient surfaces. But there are still some planetary geologists who believe that signs of volcanics might be there on the Descartes Highlands, where Charlie and John walked for three days, and that they just missed them amidst all the debris from those two large craters. But John and Charlie wholeheartedly disagreed with that out-of-date theory. Apollo 16 is now complete. The countdown begins for the 20th century's final human adventure into the solar system. One final landing on the moon. Apollo 17, a mission that would come to encapsulate everything Apollo represented and the last giant leap for mankind. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 368 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16 Splashdown. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode will be posted in a couple weeks, hopefully by August 5th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 193 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, have some afterthoughts on this episode. I want to say I'm sorry I ran so long on the episode, and sorry some of those clips are hard to hear. It was the live recording of the recovery team for Apollo 16, and I just kind of had to take what I could get on that one. Also, I couldn't find the clips for the early part of the episode, which, it, which had them in the spacecraft. And that is because they haven't been uploaded to Internet Archive. So I kind of just had to do the best I could. Some of the clips I did find, I couldn't figure out a good place to put them in. So I thought I would give you a little bonus content. I really wanted to play this one. It comes from the movie Apollo 16 Remastered. This is John and Charlie talking about a regret of their mission. Overall in Apollo, I think probably the biggest mistake we made was on the lunar surface not taking more pictures with people in them. A lot of rocks, we got a lot of rocks, but uh, not too many good pictures with people. Well, that's our job was to take pictures of rocks. They didn't want pictures with people in them. Now they wanted pictures of people near the rocks so they could tell where the rocks were, but if you got their feet or their arms or their legs, that was okay. But, I mean, we had to take five pictures per rock. I look back on our mission and I think that's probably, why don't we get more pictures of John? I think we're mighty lucky to have pictures of us saluting the flag. (laughs) And here is a clip of Mission Control uh, during their celebration after splashdown. This is Apollo Control Houston. Uh, we copied time of splashdown as uh, 290 hours, uh, 37 minutes, uh, 6 seconds, ground elapsed time. Houston, an observer on the Ticonderoga estimates the distance. Of... authentic joy and relief after a mission very well done. What did you think of the stable two position face down floating in the water? (laughs) Welcome to earth. (laughs) That must have been very uncomfortable. According to the astronauts, it felt like it took forever for the balloons on top to fill up with air so they would turn over. But, all in all, 
a landing you can walk away from is good. Well, Charlie certainly is consistently candid. <laughs> he said, I noticed people were looking at me funny when they stood close. <laughs> oh, it's because I stink. <laughs> it would have been interesting to smell that capsule after the astronauts vacated. I'm not talking about a deep breath. <laughs> I mean, just a little sniff to fulfill my curiosity. <laughs> I wonder, does NASA have an anti-stink department now? Maybe they have done something for Orion. I hope so. Orion's supposed to be for deep space travel. And they need to have something for stink. You know, I should have asked that question <laughs> during my tour down at Kennedy a few years ago. You know, I guess I could still ask my friend John at Houston. I'm sure he knows if they have an anti-stink department. <laughs> okay, before I forget, I want to give a big shout out to Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin for beginning their space tourism business sending regular people into space. Of course, regular means you have enough money for the ticket. Uh, hopefully, those prices <laughs> will come down to where they're only the price of a house or something like that instead of <laughs> 26 million or whatever it was. Last time I told you I hadn't heard about Ken's wedding ring story, and that turns out that I had heard of that, about that. And I had just forgot. A listener reminded me it was on a video, and I believe it was the HBO series. Anyway, when he mentioned that, I remembered. So, uh, apologize for leading you astray. I forget a lot of things that I've already heard, and then I say I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> I guess you get to be my age, and that's what happens. Okay, don't forget to tune in next time. For Apollo 17, Mankind's Last Giant Leap, we'll begin that series next time. Make sure you're here and download that one. And finally, for those interested in the farm project, I am very delighted to report my house has finally been started. They have dug a hole for the basement and did some other grading. We're so happy to have a hole where our house will be built. <laughs> We've taken numerous pictures and sent them to our friends. <laughs> the dirt is so red it looks like Mars over here. It is the good old North Carolina red clay. Ah, we also have a gravel driveway run to where the house is going to be too. Now, to do all this digging, they had to remove all those GPS pins. So the next step is to repin the house and pour a foundation. Repinning means putting nails back into the dirt exactly where the corners are based on GPS coordinates. They didn't do anything like this on my previous house that we built back in 87, but I guess. They want to be really precise on these new ones. 
It seems like it is taking forever to build this house. We've been living in the camper now for four months. And that was since we sold the house. And it will probably take another eight months at the rate they're progressing. Which means going through the winter here, which kind of concerns me about pipe freezes and things like that. So I guess I'm going to have to get out the heat tape and put that on. Okay, let's move on. Over the past four weeks, we have had, uh, I think it's 10 contributions. And I would like to thank Magnus B. from Australia, who donated at the shuttle level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Joe P. from Michigan, who sent in another donation and moved to the Salute Skylab level. Andrew S. from Australia, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Christian B. from Germany, who donated at the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. Peter Y., a Scotsman in Denmark, donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Debbie T. from England, donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Kyle N. from North Dakota, donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Tracy W. donated at the Sputnik level and earned a rocket emoji. Fred L. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. And Dan E. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Our total Patreon donors are at 249. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 365 and our goal is 500 by the end of the year. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. I am thrilled to report progress on our personal project. We have had all kinds of obstacles and delays waiting on inspections, paperwork, permits, and then, all of a sudden, multiple crews show up at once. It's a good thing we're on location so we can keep a watch out, because, you know, one time we had just left our place, we passed a truck down the road, and we suspected it might be heading to our site for a work order. So, we doubled back, and sure enough, they were heading for our site. It's a good thing, because this was a little complicated, and Mike really needed to be there to kind of guide them and give them some... uh, feedback. The whole place has taken on a new look. Two big holes for the two houses with basements and we're on the lookout for the grading of the third one. It won't have a basement so they said, the grader said it won't be, it won't take very much to do that one. So hopefully that's going to happen soon. Mike and I were so happy to stand where our house will sit and feel the breeze from the field. It was a good feeling. It has been fun watching the digs and how each piece of machinery is implemented, and it is such a relief to see progress. Now, for the SRH drawing. Remember, the winner of the episode will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the SRH archive magnet, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected... Randy Riddle. Randy Riddle, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks 
to all 365 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, the Apollo 16 Flight Journal, the Apollo 16 Mission Report, the Apollo 16 Timeline, the Internet Archive, Flickr, Apollo 16 Remastered, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 369 posted by August 5th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.